Howdy, I'm Paul Isaacoder, and this is Author's Dozen, a podcast where I explore barriers to storytelling by writing one novel every month for 12 months. Please enjoy. When building a story from the ground up, you start from a charismatic core and keep asking, what if, until you arrive at a world and story? <coughs> Ah, mm. Last week we talked about knowing when good is good enough and moving on, but we talked about it in macro terms, that is, on terms of entire projects rather than on the actual small details inside of that project. Knowing when to focus in and when to pass things over is mostly up to what people call theme within a smaller story. Theme is an idea that recurs in or pervades a work of art or literature. Got that from Wikipedia! Theme is often intentionally misunderstood by armchair academics as something that occurs more than once over an artist's entire catalog, so that you can prove that George Orwell's life centered around veganism for your YouTube essay. In fact, sometimes when a movie really has nothing important to say, they just have the main character say a line that was said previously. Something like, It's curtains for you! But one character says it to a character they said in the beginning, and then they have a superhero fight. Boom. Clever themedness. If you see the world in a certain way, it's going to come out in your work all natural-like. If it doesn't come out in your work, you'll get all arrogant about your worldview and force it in there anyway so that you can make everybody else think like you do. Now, the biggest problem in portraying theme is that years later, people are wondering if Machiavelli was really telling people to be Machiavellian, or if he was just making air quotes the whole time that he wrote. Your theme should be strong, yet subtle. If you're too heavy-handed with your worldview, nobody who disagrees with your thematic ideas will give your art any consideration, and they already believe what you believe. Yet, being too subtle with your message is like da Vinci painting into the Last Supper a hidden message about Jesus Christ's secret love child. We had to wait 500 years for renowned author Dan Brown and his large, renowned brain to figure that one out. Seems kind of pointless. I mean... There must be a better way! The novel I'm writing this May is called Ghost Town. In that reality, everybody's already died of a disease. And our point of view character is trying to find someone who they believe to have survived the pandemic. So, following our what-if exercise, I began to figure out what that world and story looks like. It's important we know a lot of things about how that world operates. Where do they vacation? What do they eat? Why don't they use a bidet even as the world runs out of toilet paper? It's important. But is it that important? Your theme is the sole factor in deciding how much time you spend on each what-if. It also decides when and where you introduce those what-ifs. Let's read the opening pages of Ghost Town, stopping along the way to examine how the theme impacts the way we introduce the story. I'll shout, STORY! before the text of the book. And I'll shout, COMMENT! before I talk about why I wrote what I wrote. Story! The news anchor on the television said that of the over 100 billion human beings ever to die on this earth, we will have been among the last. Then, making this proclamation of the significance that she and I shared, her body slumped over like a puppet with the hand pulled out. I looked down at my own body. Strangely enough, my body was looking back up at me. Comment! The first few lines of a book are some of the most important. 
They set the tone, style, and focus of the story while introducing premises, characters, and of course, themes. So, what can we surmise from our opening four sentences? In sentence one, we can surmise that the last to die implies that nobody will be dying anymore. This either means universal immortality or universal fatality, and the latter is assumed when the news anchor drops dead. The first sentence tells us what world we're in, one where everybody dies, and tells us who is talking, we, implying that an in-universe character is telling the story in the simple past verb tense. The second sentence tells us more about the theme. What would it mean if everybody died? We can guess the tone and worldview of the book by two things, the ironic reference to the significance that she and I shared, followed immediately by an unceremonious death, a puppet with the hand pulled out. By this, we learn that the news anchor is actually not significant, and that death renders our lives meaningless. However, there is a coda to this ending, the aforementioned hand pulled out of the puppet. Our narrator and main character is made aware of their own existence after watching the anchor die, and learns of their own existence after death by noticing an unexpected result of looking at oneself, that oneself is looking back. I could have just said, everyone on Earth was dead, but that sucks so much. Sure, it gets the setup across, but it comes with none of the flavor and theme. Is my opening perfect at capturing all I wanted to capture? No. So let's flesh it out. Story! Strangely enough, my body was looking back up at me. Looking might be too strong a word. My body had eyes, half-lidded, pointed in my direction. Despite that, there was nothing inside those eyes to be doing the looking. I realized for perhaps the first time in my life, or rather, my existence, that looking would be more properly defined as the act of perception. I realized that in my childhood years, when looking upon a painting and having the distinct impression that it was looking back at me, it wasn't the eyes in the painting that did the looking, but the life of the piece, that part of ourselves that we think of as ourselves, and the being in the world that we imagine others to share. Comment! One problem a lot of writers have nowadays is the overcorrection of trying to explain everything at once. While it's inadvisable to go on and on about things that aren't of interest to the story or theme, at least so far as the reader cares, it's also inadvisable to tear off on the marathon of a book at a sprinter's pace. I don't come to a book for a colorless Wikipedia entry. It might be fine in a poem or short story to just tear off your clothes on the first date, but a book is a relationship, not a fling. So I took my time on this second section, I let my narrator get used to the rather shocking situation without the panic and fear that other novels might employ. This tells us a lot about the narrator, but also introduces a few themes. One of Ghost Town's central ideas is seeing and being seen. I wrote that out on an actual poster that I hang above my computer while I write so that I never drift too far from it. The narrator's inability to look at others and to be looked at is super important. Not only for the story, but for what the story is trying to say. Story! I stared at my body for a moment. It was looking right through me toward the screen where the newscaster lay. I opened my mouth to mock myself for, in my precious final moments, staring at some external thing rather than looking inside myself. Never mind that my insides were now outside. However, I couldn't open my mouth. I wouldn't be mocking anything. 
My vocal cords were in that dead body of mine. Well, I thought to myself, this isn't how I imagined it. Comment! Do you see where I'm going with this looking thing? Maybe you think you do. What you think my answer will end up being depends on your worldview's interpreting of my worldview. In this, we'll introduce the challenge. The challenge isn't that the person is dead, it's that this person can't do all the things that they used to do. See, you and I are, in the worldview of this book, as much bodies as we are soul. And part of the point of the book is that those two things are interconnected maybe more than we think. So this person is frustrated. They're frustrated at not having a body to do the things that they used to do. And yet, with that frustration comes a realization. Story! I tried to look at my own hands, but I had none. I could change what I looked at, at least. Experimenting with motion, I found myself slowly fading out of my bedroom and into my bathroom. I wasn't moving, I was simply getting where I was going to. There, in my water-speckled bathroom mirror, I perceived nothing. I realized then that I had been too hasty in my definition of looking. Looking was a two-way street. Looking is a perceiver, looking at something capable of being perceived. You always knew that death was coming, I thought. I thought this thought to the mirror itself, but with the imaginary idea that I was in the mirror to be spoken to. It would be better for you if you loved what is inevitable. Try as I might, though, I could not yet enjoy whatever it was that I was. Well, I thought, you better find out something to do about this, or you're going to be in for a long eternity. Comment! Adding comments to your own work is pretty self-obsessive and gross. Comment, comment! But I'm an author, and self-obsessed comes with the territory. So, quite a conundrum this ghost has. And now that we're in the end of our very short first chapter, I want to focus in on what I didn't focus in on. Did you know what gender the narrator was? No? Well, me neither. I go back and forth on that. It's not important, actually, considering this person is an incorporeal being and ghosts do not have gonads. I don't actually know what the race and hair color of this ghost's former body is, either. I actually think it's more important to go the Rachel route and keep the narrator as anonymous as possible. Other things I omitted simply because they're not useful or helpful. There is this pernicious rumor that writers are arbitrary in their descriptions, so much so in fact that a reader might pass by a word or four or six without missing something that's been said. Writers, it's said, sometimes just throw blue curtains in a scene without attaching any sort of metaphysical importance to the blueness or the curtaininess of the curtain. See, just because something isn't strictly necessary to your theme doesn't mean it can't be made necessary. Take me on a tour of words through the space in which you live. Seriously, right now, do it. Begin at an entrance, a door. Now mine is a most charismatic sheet of wood, made metaphor by its function. In writing, an open or closed door is a significant thing. Is the door locked or unlocked? And from which side does it lock? Does it swing outward or inward? Why? Interrogate this hinged block. An entrance says much about a place, as does its exit. Describe the inside. You may begin at the temperature, the atmosphere, the smell. Often sight comes second to feel. Is there some irregularity in the air? Some 
sound or stench or chill vacuum emanating in the space beyond? If not, note the absence of interest. Regularity is just chaos waiting to happen. Step inside. How is it to move on the floor? Is the foundation strong? Does it tilt or squeak beneath you? How does it feel against your skin and socks and shoes? Now, and only now, use your eyes. Your eyes see only the surface of objects. Learn the names of those surfaces. Learn the shapes, the likenesses, the textures, the colors. Learn as many names as you can, or everything will sound to your reader like a hard blue cube instead of a plump, sturdy, legged footrest. A pale, corduroy corpse. You know, that's taking it too far, but sometimes a footrest is just a place to put your feet. You needn't detail that which is unimportant. But if it's important, name it important. But things are not only as they are now. We are mankind. We know the past of things. We imagine the future of things. What is the history of your showerhead? Have you been saving an empty space on your countertop for some hoped-for appliance? And as you move through the space in which you live, do things to it. Move a chair. How is that? What is a chair like? Feed your pet goldfish. Is a goldfish really a pet? Is it more of like a living decoration? Imagine its life, its death, all in the water. It hovers in there, water filled and surrounded until it becomes the water. Strange, sad, wonderful? Eh, maybe not. Go outside. See your home from the sides, from the top down, from the sky, until you know exactly where your home is in relation to everything there is. What is the meaning of this place? Now, given all this information, why would I deign to describe anything that's not important? Why would I tell you that the curtains are blue? If I described what was unimportant, I would never stop. There is infinite description lying within everything and everyone. The curtains are never just blue, okay? Like somebody installed those curtains. They wanted to create a room that wasn't a white, colorless, curtainless void. And that's the contract we make, we writers and readers. We direct attention to what's worth our attention. If we don't, if we break that contract and write and read what's unnecessary, or leave unsaid what needs said, or direct attention away from the theme of the book, or drown out the theme with useless noise, well, it's curtains for us. I did it! The curtains thing, get it? The, the line. Okay, well, that's that. No more. Um... Uh, Night of the Mayfly. It's a cat detective book. It's out. It's really good, guys. I heard so from my grandmother, and she reads more books than you. So you can take her advice to the bank. And if you want to leave a comment, go to authorsdozen.com. We've got all kinds of uh, methods of commenting. We've got surveys. We got episode transcripts. We have links to all the little podcast feeds you can podcast at. It's amazing. So go do that. Authorsdozen.com, baby. See you later.